We're going to be starting our new series today in Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 1 is where you would want to turn and open your scriptures to. We're going to get, I promise, to verse 1 eventually. Um, But my task this morning is to really kind of set the stage for the entirety of Hebrews as we work through this book over the next many months. Okay, We're going to really take some time uh, to work through this book of the Bible because it's very important. It's a very great book. But I'm going to set the stage and then I'm going to work us through the first Four verses. So when I was this week, as I was preparing, I kind of kept asking, I was like, Lord, give me, give me something that I can, like an introduction that I can give to our people to kind of share this whole uh, basic theme of Hebrews. And on Wednesday after my workout, um, I, I had a thought. And I'm like, oh, that's a perfect, perfect introduction. So I want to tell you about a pastor that I grew up under. His name is Pastor John Avant. Pastor John Avant was the pastor at Coggin Avenue Baptist Church in Brownwood, Texas. I was a young boy about that time. And uh, Pastor Avant was a big hunter. He loved to hunt. I remember vividly one day I came outside and Pastor Avant and my dad were standing at the pastor's truck and he's holding up these antlers. Most likely he had shot them probably either the day before, maybe even the night before he preached that Sunday. And they were just sitting there staring at these antlers of this deer that he had shot. And so um, I remember Pastor Avant being this just really just big hunter. And he tells this story. And the story was this. Uh, back up there in Brownwood, we have a, a snake called a rattlesnake. Anybody familiar with rattlesnakes? If you're not familiar with rattlesnakes, um, they're poisonous. And they are not a very good snake. So uh, he's out there hunting. And one of the things that he was always afraid of was that he would accidentally startle a rattlesnake and get bit. So he tells this story that he bought some rattlesnake shin guards. All right? These are like massive. They look like... They look like hockey shin guards that you put over your feet as you walk through the woods. And so, you know, he had these, he had confidence in these shin guards. He was walking around like, I'm the man with these shin guards. Until one day, one day he heard what sounded like a baby rattle. Now, if you know anything about rattlesnakes, um, that is not the end you're most worried about is the one that makes the noise. You're worried about the other end that is silent, but deadly. And it was in that moment when... Pastor John came face to face, maybe toe to face, with this rattlesnake that he began to really lose confidence in these rattlesnake shin guards. In the moment that he faced danger, he goes, you know what? I'm not sure I want to put all my faith and trust into these things. because What if they don't work? What if this snake bites me and uh, it, they don't stop the fangs and, I, and, and, it, and it affects my body? So... Pastor John, what he decided to do was he decided to give the snake the area and he, losing faith in his rattlesnake shin guards, decided to go another way. Decided to go another path. And this is very similar to what the audience in Hebrews is dealing with. The audience in Hebrews, they've they've come face to face with some danger. In fact, this danger is in the form of persecution. They are being persecuted for their faith. And what is happening happening in this moment is that their faith is beginning to wobble. They begin to go, ah, I don't know if Jesus really can secure and keep me safe in these moments. I, I'm beginning to lose confidence in who Jesus is. And I'm beginning to lose confidence into what Jesus has done for us. And perhaps because we're facing this, this struggle right now in our life, perhaps we should walk away from the faith. And it's at this point, the author of Hebrews says, no, no, don't walk. Stay confident in Christ. Because Christ is superior to all. Because Christ is both the author and perfecter of your faith. 
And this applies very much to our lives today, don't, doesn't it? This is exactly what we do anytime we face trouble as Christians, right? What do we want to do? We're like, oh God, are you there? Do you even care? It was a lot easier if I just would go and do the old things that I used to do because I wouldn't be dealing with the things that I'm dealing with today. Don't we have that same propensity in our lives to doubt the goodness of God and to doubt the confidence that we have in Christ? And when we're face to face with things that make us uncomfortable or make us question our faith, that we're like, you know what? Maybe today I need to take another path because my faith, the foundation of my faith in Jesus is beginning to shake. I want you to see today at the author of Hebrews and over the next many months of this study that the author of Hebrews, Hebrews answers this question. And the answer to his question, this question of how do we keep when our, when our faith is being shaken at the foundations, how do we keep going? He says your confidence and security rest in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's when you see the greatness and the big biblical picture of, of who Christ is that you will begin to walk in faith no matter what you might deal with. You'll be like David who says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. I want to strengthen your faith this morning in Jesus, specifically through the author of Hebrews and what he says to this church. So let me provide you a little background to the, to the audience. Uh, we don't know a lot about the audience in the book of Hebrews. Scholars are all over the place as to who the audience is. Scholars are all over the place as to where the audience lives in this time. But I read through the entire book of Hebrews this week as I was preparing for this sermon. And so the Bible, the, the, the author in, in Hebrews, he gives us some hints and insights into this particular audience. First off, we know that this audience came from a Jewish background. The reason we know that is because if you read through the book of Hebrews, it is filled with Old Testament references. Temple priests, tabernacles. Psalm 2, what we read earlier, it's, it's one of the basic psalms that, that the author of Hebrews is going to bring to the forefront of his audience. Psalm 10, which we'll say at the very end of our, of our time together, is also another psalm that he brings. He talks about Genesis and, and Exodus and the Levitical law. There is a lot of Old Testament. So obviously the audience has what? A basic knowledge of the Old Testament that he is drawing upon in order to point them to Jesus. He's basically saying the Old Testament and its function was designed to point to Christ. Now I'm going to show you some of the ways that the Old Testament points to Jesus. So we know that they have a Jewish background. But we also see um, that they are Christians. That they believe in Jesus. And they are under persecution. So in Hebrews, uh, they are not being martyred for their faith in Hebrews 10. But Hebrews 10 shows us that they are being persecuted for their faith. And one of the, some of the ways that we see in Hebrews that they're being persecuted is that they are being ridiculed and publicly shamed for believing in Jesus. Ridiculed and publicly shamed for believing in Jesus. Some of them are going to prison because of their belief in Jesus. And we also see that people are taking their possessions away for their belief in Jesus. And it is this circumstance that is causing their faith to wobble. However, we think most likely that they are also second generation Christians, which means that most likely this audience did not have a face to face eyewitness account of what Jesus did and Jesus's resurrection, which is very similar to our own situation, is it not? Their faith was built 
on the eyewitnesses of the apostles. Just like God has used the eyewitnesses of the apostles in our lives to open the souls of our heart to the goodness and truth of who Jesus is and what he did for you and me, right? They are building their faith. That's why he says in Hebrews 11, faith is things that are not, that are not seen. They're hoped for with an idea that most people think that this group of Christians is a second generation Christian. That wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly life ministry sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. So they're very much in the same boat that we are. We are looking back and our faith is built on what the Bible says based on the eyewitness accounts of people who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, saw Jesus die on a cross and then victoriously and miraculously resurrect from the dead and they ate with Jesus and they talked with Jesus again before he ascended into heaven and given them the great commission. So their situation is very similar to ours. But I would also say, perhaps, that their cultural situation is also very similar to ours. Now, I'll be just very open. I don't like to be culturally prophetic. And what I mean by that is not prophetic in that I'm going to give you some new word from God because I don't believe that's possible. I think the written word is here, Genesis to Revelation. This is all we got. It's all God needed to give us. But when I say culturally prophetic, I want to argue that I think that when we take the truths of Scripture and we take the current situation of our day, I think we can see some similarities. And that's what I mean by culturally prophetic. In other words, I think that the audience in Hebrew is very similar to our, us in today's culture. In that we are not being persecuted for our faith as Christians living in America. We're not gonna, nobody walks out of here fears that they're going to be martyred for their faith. Martyred means to be killed for your faith. Nobody walks out of here and is afraid that the police are going to come take us off and haul us off and kill us because we believe in Jesus. We can comfortably come into our sinner's church gatherings and not have to fear that type of persecution where there's some other brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe that do have to worry about that. That they have to have secret church and church that is hidden in homes for fear of truly being killed for their faith. But I do think that our situation, our cultural situation is similar to the audience in Hebrews in that we are in a season right now in our American culture where we will be shamed and ridiculed for our faith. I'm reading a book right now by Carl Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's really, it's 400 pages of just great research and writing. I highly recommend you don't read it. This is only for nerdy guys like me that enjoy reading these kind of scholarly works. And in this, he makes a, a really strong argument. He makes the argument that the culture we are living in is what Philip Reef called a third world culture. Not to be confused with a third world country. A third world country is economic, thinking people that don't have a lot of resources. This is a third world culture. And Truman makes the argument that the American culture is a third world culture in that they have, we have completely detached life from any type of higher being. We have completely detached our lives from any truth or recollection that there is a God at all. And so culture lives right now, culture, this third world culture that we live in, lives under what they call the psychological man. The psychological man is somebody who believes that truth is whatever I think and whatever I feel makes me happy and gives me purpose. So my identity is wrapped up in what I feel makes me happy and gives me purpose. This is the psychological man that is a part of this third world culture. 
And therefore, the psychological man turns to society and says to society, society, you have to also believe in my identity. You have to believe in what I think is makes me happy, and what makes what I think is right. You have to affirm that basically as a society on my life. Well, what's the problem with this? What's the problem with this? Besides a million problems, let me give you two. The first problem is that the Bible talks very clearly about what we call human depravity. So let me give this to you in a very easy language. We are evil, messed up people. Paul says that we're going to give over to our own flesh whenever we want. That's the brokenness. So it's impossible for us to say that truth and identity comes out of what I believe and feel is right. Because we're, we're broken. If we weren't totally broken, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Right? He came to save us from our total depravity. So we are totally depraved. Nothing comes out of us good. The second problem with this is that when we come as Christians, we come with a very different thinking and view of the world. Prayerfully, you come to the world and to society thinking scripturally. So we understand that our identity as Christians is not wrapped up in what I think or feel about myself. Where does our identity come from? Christ. That's why Paul over and over in his letter says that you are in Christ. That our identity as Christians is in Jesus. He gives us our identity and he's the one who makes us a child of God based off of his life, death and resurrection. But the other thing we believe about as Christians, we believe that God is is the creator and ruler of this earth, don't we? Like he is sovereign over it all. God is in control and God is sovereign. And so we believe that God, when he created the the created order, is what we'll call this, uh, the world that we live in, that he created it in a way that reflects his glory and his goodness. In other words, that when you do things God's way, typically you'll flourish, right? Doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. That doesn't mean you're not going to feel the effects of the fall. But when you do things the way that God has prescribed for you to do, typically things go well when you do things God's way, right? The problem is that when the psychological man in third world culture come against Christianity, they fight. They become volatile. And therefore, the reason why I think we're very much like the Hebrew audience is this. Because when we clash in our culture today... They're going to ridicule and shame us for our beliefs in Jesus. They're going to say, oh, you think that old way? You're bigoted in your view. You need to catch up with the modern man. You get away from that religious stuff that doesn't mean anything. That There's no God. They're going to shame and ridicule us publicly for our beliefs and what we believe about Jesus, the identity we have in Jesus, and the way that we believe Jesus tells us to live. Right? And I'm not going to be surprised in the days to come. Again, I don't like to be prophetic, but I don't like to, I won't be surprised in the days to come if we start to experience persecution as Christians living in America, not in terms of martyrdom, but it may be. Maybe they're going to come and say, well, you can no longer gather in church buildings. Maybe they'll take our tax exemption status away. No longer we get to write off. You're giving in tithes and charitable donations. Maybe, not only will they publicly vandalize or publicly shame you, but maybe they'll vandalize your property for believing in Jesus. 
maybe your business and your livelihood is in is possibly in jeopardy because you do business and operate different than the world does. Let me tell you, I can show you Supreme Court cases that this is already happening. The question becomes, when these things happen to us, what does this do to your faith? Does it shake your faith where you go, hmm... I'm not really sure Jesus is really worth following if this is what I'm going to be dealt. Or, do you continue to cling to Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith even during times of difficulty? And you can stay like David, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I love what the author of Hebrews does from the very beginning. If you have your Bible and you're in Hebrews 1, let me just show you two verses real quick. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. I love this about the author of Hebrews. Based off of this audience context, look what he says in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, two verses in to Hebrews. And who does he start talking about? Thank you. If, you, you, if anytime you're in a Sunday school or small group or MC group and somebody asks a question... Just throw Jesus out, you're probably going to be right on the money. Who does he go straight to? The Son. Amazingly, amazingly, he doesn't even start with the proper greeting. He doesn't start, like, this is one of the other interesting things about the letter of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. It's been speculated Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, the early church father, or the early church father origin got it right. He says it doesn't matter who wrote it because God knows who wrote it. And I would take origin's uh, thought just a step further. I would say this that as Christians, we believe in the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture, which means that God spoke through human authors. So we know the divine author of Hebrews, do we not? And his name is Jesus. Look at you guys. You are learning today. It's very interesting that he doesn't begin with a greeting. I, Paul, I, Apollos, whoever it might be. He just goes, let me just take you straight to Jesus right now. Straight up in verse 2, the very beginning, the last days he has spoken to us by his son. I think there's a purpose behind this for the author. The author understands their situation and their, and their doubts and their wobbling. He says, listen, church, Christians, don't lose faith in Christ. Because it is through Christ and Christ alone that you will persevere through these times. Brothers and sisters of Christ, that is exactly what we need to be saying in our hearts today in our cultural setting. Don't fear. Stand on faith that Jesus is who He says He is. Has done what He says He will do and will do what He says He's going to do. You stand firm in Christ and through that confidence in Christ, unlike those rattlesnake shin guards that John Avant had, he said, you say confident in Christ and you will continue to walk faithfully for the glory of God. But here's my concern, church. My concern is that so many of us as Christians, we want to say Jesus plus something can make everything better. We have a tendency not to just, if we wrote, the, if we wrote Hebrews, we would not go Jesus and that's it. We would, we would typically, in, in our American Christianity, we kind of go, um, Jesus plus this is what's going to give me confidence and keep us protected. Perhaps for some of you, that's economic stability. Jesus plus economic stability means I'm going to be okay. 
I mean, these, these Christians are getting their things taken away from them. You want to put your faith in economic stability? Can I give you a hint? It will always fail you. Oh, maybe, maybe some of us in here, we want, to, we want to put our faith in government. Put our faith, put all of our faith in the government because the government's going to help us. Let me tell you something. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that God has divinely ordained government for our benefit. But government doesn't take the place of Jesus as Savior. The government cannot change hearts and transform lives like Jesus can. But so many Christians, I think they're like, well, I'm going to put, my, put, put Jesus and then I'm going to, as J.D. Greer always likes to say, and then I'm going to put my faith in either the, the party of the elephant or the donkey. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way that we live. We put all of our faith in the one that the Bible calls the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. You could have said amen right there. Because that was good. That's who we put our faith in. Yes, we we be good citizens. Yes, we do try to benefit people in politics. We we live as like Jeremiah, they told, Jeremiah told the people in exile, you know, we'd live for the betterment of our city. But that is not who we put our faith in. Our foundation and bedrock of our faith is Christ. And so when these things pop up, how does Christ help us respond? How does our faith in Christ help us respond in, in, a, in a culture, a third world culture, that really can become volatile and hostile to Christianity if it hasn't already got there already? Well, the author of Hebrews in the very verse, first, four, first four verses gives us two pathways for this. Two pathways in which we see our confidence in Christ build so that we will persevere in life no matter what comes our way. Number one, we see first off that God still speaks and he has definitively spoken in Jesus. So first thing we need to understand is that God still speaks and that he has definitively spoken in Christ. What I mean by this is how many times uh, when something bad happens in our life, something happens like, uh, you know, you find faith in Jesus and all of a sudden maybe you lose your friendships or maybe even, you know, you, you lose a marriage or you find Jesus and you lose your job. You find Jesus and you lose your health and you're like, this is what it's like to follow Jesus. I follow Jesus and all these bad things seem to start popping up everywhere like little rattlesnakes biting me. And what is the first thing that we like to do? We like to believe the lie that what? That God isn't there anymore. Where are you? I'm dealing with all this stuff. And I don't hear you say anything about it. Are you even there? Do you even care? You realize how antithetical to the gospel that is? (laughs) Jesus came with the one purpose and mission in life to die for our sins. And the whole time he communed with his father, communed with his father, communed with his father, communed with his father. Goes into the wilderness and stars and communes with his father. Is tempted in every way that we are and communes with his father. He even suffers the de- our death on a cross, taking the wrath of God and victoriously and gloriously resurrects from the grave. And you know what? God was there through it all. God saw it, knew it, took care of it the whole way. But it was through the Son that's the only way that God could save sinners depraved like you and me. And so God did that out of his love for us. And he knew what was taking place in order to save us from our sins. So don't buy into the lie that when bad things happen or when you are persecuted for your faith, don't buy into the lie that God's not there. Because the author of Hebrews says, no, God is there. And God still speaks to your life. 
And specifically, he has spoken definitively to you through Jesus Christ. Look what the author does here. I love it. He said, long ago, long ago, at many times and in many ways. So let's just kind of stop right there and ask the question, how has God spoken to us in many times and in many ways? Well, a couple different ways we see from Scripture. Number one, we know that God spoke creation into existence. The most amazing thing on the planet. Wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the sixth day? No, never mind. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall at the beginning of this whole thing? To watch God speak, and as he speaks, things just start popping up. Let there be light. Boom, light shows up. Let there be water. Boom. Isn't that stars and moon? Wouldn't that be amazing? Okay, tell me you would not be amazed if Pastor Jeremy got up here and I said, let there be a boat, and a boat showed up. Would you not be like, YouTube, YouTube, Pastor Jeremy the musician. I mean, not a musician, magician. You would be amazed, would you not? Would you not? And then what would you be asking yourself? How did he do it, right? I know. God, you don't have to ask. God tells you, I've spoken into existence. And one of the beautiful things is that creation speaks about the beauty and goodness of God. Psalm 119, or Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever seen like a beautiful painting? Do you know why paintings, they, the artist puts their name at the bottom of a painting? So you know who created it. So you know who the creator of that creation was. And, and God, and deep within us, I believe, deep within us, God has, has kind of put that on our hearts. When we go outside and we see a beautiful sunset, or we see a beautiful sunrise, or we see a, a beautiful landscape, or we, living in Brenham, we see beautiful brown grass. What do we do? Deep within us, we're like, who made this? Where did this beauty come from? God has spoken to us through his creation that he is there. Now, the problem is that creation can only get you so far. In fact, I would argue that creation cannot get you far enough. It can let you know that there is somebody who created. There's a being, a greater being, but it won't tell you who that being is. And that's why God, in his sovereignty, gave us today the Bible. God has specially spoken and revealed himself to us through scripture. And one of the ways that he did this in the the past was he spoke through prophets. People divinely inspired to record and say what God told them to say. Think of the prophets of old. Moses. God tells Moses, here's the commandments, take them down to the people. Goes down to the people and says, this is what God told us to do. Think of people like Samuel. God spoke to Samuel, tell this to King Saul. God spoke to Samuel, go pick out the next king, King David. Think of Elijah or Jeremiah or Isaiah. God was speaking to his people through these divinely inspired prophets. And so God has spoken to us through the Old Testament. He has graciously recorded the Old Testament for us as well. And he is speaking to us through the Old Testament. But what's interesting is not only does he speak to us in this way, he says God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but then in verse 2 he says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen, the purpose of the Old Testament is to point to the Jesus of the New Testament. And Jesus would open the eyes of the two walking down the road to Aramaeus. And he would say, starting with Moses and the prophets, he talked about them and how they pointed to himself. Let me give you a little insight theologically into scripture. The main character of scripture, contrary to popular belief, is not you. And me. Because don't get me wrong. I read the scriptures by myself sometimes too. And I'm like, ooh, there's me. No. 
the main theme, the main character of Scripture is not us. The main character of Scripture is Jesus. So when you come to your Scriptures, you should be seeing Jesus everywhere throughout them. God has spoken to us definitively in His Son that the, that the people of the Old Testament, they were waiting and looking for the promised Messiah who came in Christ, the Anointed One. God who takes on the flesh. But so many of us, we do two things. We either don't read our Old, Old Testament or we read our Old Testament and we don't see Jesus. As a Christian, I think it's impossible not to see Jesus in the Old Testament. For example, Genesis 3.15 is the promise. It's the promised gospel. Where he tells the serpent that the woman, through the woman, she's going to bear a son. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Well, who does that point to if you're a Christian? Church answer, go. Jesus. I would argue that we actually see Jesus in the gospel in Genesis 1-1, but that's an academic argument for a different day. Just read John 1-1 and Genesis 1-1 and you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay? Amen. Amen. What about Abraham and Isaac? And Abraham and Isaac, don't you see Jesus? Abraham is going to sacrifice his only son. God says, Wait! But when the time came for God to sacrifice His one and only begotten Son, guess what He didn't do? He didn't wait. He sacrificed His Son for us. Or think about Moses. Moses was an awesome dude. I mean, you just read Moses' stuff and sometimes I'm like, whoa. How cool would it have been to be Moses? Your face shines. You gotta put a veil because you're, you're kind of freaking people out. You know, like you bring the Ten Commandments down, get kind of mad and break them. I mean, I would never want to do that in a church, but like, you know, that'd be super fun to watch, right? Somebody get really mad and just slam the Ten Commandments. Don't do it. Don't do it. But Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the one that, that not only delivers the law, but he's the one who kept the law because we couldn't. So he could be our sinless sacrifice. What about, uh, we could just, like, I could go on, I could go on forever. I could talk about how Isaiah prophesies about a, 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 the Savior who will be born of a virgin. Enter Mary and Jesus. Or I'll talk about Isaiah and the suffering servant of, Psalm, of Isaiah 51, 2 and 3. When do you see? Enter Jesus. Did you know you even see the gospel in David and Goliath? Clearly in David and Goliath. And don't get me wrong, it doesn't sell books, right? Facing your giant sells some good books. But in that story, when you look at it in terms of the gospel, we are not David. We're actually the Israelites. We're the Israelites cowering in fear because there is an enemy who is greater than us. That is sin. That is death. That is Satan himself. And we just sit there and shake and we're like, who is going to deliver us from this Goliath? In walks a shepherd boy. John 10, 10 says what? Jesus is the good shepherd. In walks Jesus. And what does Jesus do for us who are cowering in fear from our sin, from our death, and from our destruction, and from the enemy? What does he do? He slays that giant for you and me. Isn't that amazing? Literally could go on and on all day. But I won't because we've got to move on. The point that the, Hebrew of, the author of Hebrews is saying, he's saying, listen, everything that God was speaking in the Old Testament was leading up to Jesus. The Word who would become flesh and dwell among us. The One who would come to save us. Second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever generation we are of Christians, by the work, by His work on the cross 
and His glorious resurrection for us. God has spoken definitively in Christ so that we know as Christians today, our faith is rested in not what we've seen Jesus do in the in physical sense, but what, what we've seen Jesus has done in the resurrection sense. And it's because of that, it's because of that truth that God has spoken to us definitively, we know, we have security and comfort and know what? We know that Jesus died for us, that He is our gift from God to us, that if we believe in Him, He calls us and brings us in as His children, and we know what the end looks like when we live on the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's all about Jesus. But here's my concern, church. My concern is that we're so busy in our lives, or things go on in our lives so badly, that we don't ever stop and say, God, speak to me. Did you know that God still speaks through His Word to you today? If somebody comes up to me and says, Jeremy, I haven't heard God speak to me in a while, I would say, well, it's probably because you haven't been reading your Bible. Because every time you open the Scriptures, God speaks. These are His beautifully inspired, inerrant, perfect words from Himself to fall into broken humanity about who He is and what He's done. He speaks through His Word. And I believe that the Scripture is sufficient for salvation and godly living. Perhaps a story to kind of reveal to you the truth of how God still speaks through His Word. Many years ago, I was an associate pastor at a, at a small 200-member Southern Baptist church. And I mean, they were Southern Baptist. Suit and ties and all that wonderful good stuff, right? And I was ready to go. I'd been there for almost four and a half years. I was ready to get out. Like That just wasn't necessarily where I was in my walk with Jesus at the time. And so I get a call from a friend. And the friend was like, hey, we have a, 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 we have a campus pastor job opening that I would really like for you to consider yourself with. I'm like, oh, yeah, going from 200 to 700, a vibrant. On the outside, this ministry was big and vibrant and growing. And I'm like, I want to be a part of that. This is a no-brainer. No-brainer. I'm in. But let me pray about it. So I get into, I get in and I start to pray one, one uh, Tuesday morning in my quiet time. And I'm reading through scripture and I come to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13, let me give you a quick highlight of what that is. 1 Samuel 13 is when Samuel comes up, or excuse me, when Saul is getting ready to fight the Philistine army. And Samuel's supposed to be coming and doing the sacrifice, but Samuel's nowhere to be found. And so everybody starts to, all these soldiers that Saul is leading, they're starting to freak out because Samuel's not there. And so they start to run away. And Saul, in a hasty decision, he makes the sacrifice on behalf of Samuel. And right about the time he makes the sacrifice, guess who comes walking up? Samuel. And Samuel, in his prophetic voice, he tells Saul, he says, because you didn't wait, I'm taking the kingdom from you and I'm giving it to another. And who is that other? David, you could have said Jesus, and technically you would still have been right. I'm giving it to David. And it was in that moment, when I'm getting ready to make this huge decision to move my family from South Carolina to North Carolina to go join this ministry, it was in that moment that the Holy Spirit impressed upon my heart, wait. So being the good pastor that I was, I'm like, you're crazy, Lord. I am not waiting. I am out of here. This is it. I deserve this. This is, this is the ministry that you, you, you really want me to have. So God, in his good and graciousness, he's like, fine, stubborn-headed Jeremy, then I'll, I'll go to your wife. She'll get you straight. Two days later, on a Thursday, Katie was going to the YMCA to do a workout. And she was go, she'd go to do this group workout with a guy by the name of Felix. We used to call him Fix-It Felix. Wreck-It Ralph was a big thing back then. 
And so uh, Fix-It Felix came, and, and he would do a devotion with the, with the ladies before he would do their, their group workout. And guess what scripture he pulled out that Thursday? 1 Samuel 13. Couldn't make that up if I tried. 1 Samuel 13. And he tells them the story of Saul. And he says, sometimes God wants you to wait because he's got a different plan for your life. And the Holy Spirit immediately in that moment impressed upon Katie. Wait. Don't go to that church. She calls me on her way home. She's like, you're never going to guess what happened. I don't think we need to go to that church in North Carolina with the 700 people that want you. I said, why? Of course they want me. Of course, we're, this is God's will. She said, I was, I was in class. Felix read 1 Samuel 13. And when he got done with 1 Samuel 13, he said, sometimes God wants you to wait because he has a different plan for your life. I, she said, I think the Holy Spirit impressed upon me that this isn't where we need to go. We need to wait. Silence on the other end of that phone. She thought we got disconnected. Hello, are you there? I'm like, you're not going to believe this. But you should, because God is that good. You should believe when he speaks to you. I said, he, he used that same scripture to, to reveal to me the same thing two days ago. And I told him no. Thankfully, we didn't go to that church, by the way. Because while it looked beautiful on the outside, the inside, that leadership was very toxic. Probably would have ate me up, spit me out, and I probably wouldn't even be in ministry today. Those are sisters. God still speaks. And he has spoken definitively through his son, Jesus Christ. So no matter what you're going through in this life, come to God's word and hear what he has to say. Find confidence and stability in your faith in Christ, which the whole Bible is about, and allow God to speak into the decisions and circumstances of your life through his word. I think that's the first pathway forward to perseverance as Christians. Number two, and lastly, I only have two, two points today, two pathways Lastly, we believe and cherish that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Lastly, we believe the pathway, the second pathway forward to perseverance of the saints is that we believe that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Look what he says at the end of verse 2. But in these last days he has appointed us by his son. What? Whom he appointed the heir of all things. There's his kingship. Jesus owns it all. He is the heir. Everything out there is, belongs to him. He is inherited Everything from your life to the government to the way that the world works, he is over it. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It also says that through whom also he created the world. In his kingship and his ability, he created the world out of nothing. He was there in the beginning because he's always existed and always will exist. Verse 3, we see that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. We call this the incarnation. Look what he does. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think that is a prophetic statement. He upholds the universe by what? By the words of his power. That that is how powerful our God is. That Jesus himself speaks and it happens. Then after this, look at he's, he's, we see his priestliness here in, at the end of verse 3 and end of verse 4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I'll tell you that we're going to look more into these themes later on in the, in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see them a little more developed. But I want you to see that he talks to, talks to these people about Jesus as prophet, as priest, and then at the very end, king, or at the very prophet, priest, and king. But at the very end, he talks about him as their priest. Look what he does. After making purification for sins. How does Jesus make purification for your sin? Well, first, he lived a life that you couldn't live. So he had no sin. 
I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Could you imagine being Jesus' half-brother? Can't you just be more like Jesus, Mary would say? Be terrible, terrible, but wonderful all at the same time, <laughs> right? He lived a life that you and I couldn't live because of our sins, and he died a sin, sinner's death for us. God took all of the sins and put them on the Son. All of your sins, all of my sins, and put them on the Son. That's how he made purification for sins. He spilt his blood. This takes us back to the Old Testament days of the priesthood. Man, you want to talk about, you want to talk about a job back in the Old Testament? Be a priest. Like all day, you're on your feet, and you're making sacrifices for people who come up. They've got to do all these different sacrifices, spill all this different this animal sacrifice and blood out there in order to purify the people. It'd be like, it'd be like right, you're a priest, and you're walking around, and here comes somebody, and you're like, man, you're back. Weren't you just here yesterday? And then you go, and you make the sacrifice, and like 30 minutes later, they show back up. You're like, wait, you're back again? What are you doing? Stop sinning. And all day long, they were making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for the people. But look what it says in this text at the end of verse 3. After making purifications for sins, he sat down. That Jesus' sacrifice was all done after one time. That Jesus, as our sacrificial lamb, doesn't need to be sacrificed every day you sin. His one sacrifice was enough for all your sins. Do you believe that? That's how much... That's how much his priesthood shows us. He's a greater priest than even the priests of the Old Testament. That after making purifications for the sins, he rose again. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's where he sits even today. Interestingly, let me just kind of put this out there as we continue our study through Hebrews. When the author of Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, we don't ever see like the word resurrection in the Hebrews text. But I think when he uses this type of language, the resurrection is implied. So once Jesus rose from the grave... Revealed himself to his disciples. He ascended into heaven. And then what did he do? What is he doing? Sat down. In order to tell us as Christians that he, as our prophet, priest, and king, has made the ultimate sacrifice, and that's it. All your sins are forgiven through Jesus. Period. You don't need to do anything else. Because Christ has literally done it all. You could have said amen right there if you wanted to. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty. And look what he sees his superiority come to play in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's saying this. Jesus is greater than anything on this planet, seen and unseen. That nothing in this world that God has created compares to our Savior. Nothing. Does that give you confidence? Does that give you trust in Jesus? And does that cause you to willingly say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go and do whatever you tell me to do? I'm going to end with this story to kind of show you like Jesus, that Jesus is the king worth following. I get this story from uh, one of my former pastors, J.D. Greer. He actually told this story a couple of weeks ago in one of his sermons. And I'm like, that story really does apply to my text as well. So I'm going to take it from him. He tells a story. He used to tell this to his children all the time. And uh, he said, he even, in his sermon, he even said uh, he doesn't know if it's true or not. But it's still a good story that brings home a good point, right? Okay, are you with me? So don't go look up and be like, oh, I didn't find this Viking king that you're talking about. Okay, we don't know if it's true or not, but it just brings a point to, to bear. There's this Viking king who ruled this kingdom. And he was a good king. Good king. He was just... He was kind, he was gracious, he was loving, he loved his people well. 
to give them anything that they needed, anything that they wanted in order to help them do. And everybody loved him. One day this Viking king was told that somebody was stealing from his treasury. So he gathers all the people together and says, listen, you don't have to steal from me. I am a good king. I love you. Just come and whatever you need, I will give to you. A couple days go by and the treasury comes back to him and says, somebody's still stealing from you. So he goes back out and he says, listen, this can't continue. We can't have a society like this. We can't do this thievery. And so I'm going to find out who you are, but because I love you, I'm going to give you 15 lashes for stealing from us. So just stop. Come forward. Take your punishment. And then we'll just move on and I'll give you what you need. Days go by again and the treasury comes up and says, somebody's still stealing from you. So he goes back out and he says, I'm going to have to up it to 30 lashes. Days go by, finds out that somebody's still stealing from him, so he says, I'm going to have to up it to 40 lashes, knowing that most likely that amount of lashes would have killed the person. A couple of days later, somebody comes up to him and says, we found the thief, we've caught her. He's like, great, who is it? And they said, King, we're sad to inform you, but it's your mom. Your mom's been stealing from you all these days. So people wondered, oh, what is the king going to do? Is he going to go through with what he said? Is he going to be just? He's going to punish her like he was said he was going to punish the other thief if it wasn't her. So the day came where the mom was going to receive her punishment. And everybody's gathered around. And as the, the guy who was about to inflict the pain began to, before he started, the king said, wait. Everybody's like, oh, this is it. He's going to tell us. He's going to say, no, we're not doing this. He walks out of his stand and he goes to his mom and he gives her a big hug. Standing in between her and the person that was going to be given the lashes to her. And he turns to the guy and he says, now try to hit her. The guy says, wait, king, if I do that, I'm going to hit you. He said, I know. The punishment must be rendered, but I'm covering her with my love to protect her from it. Is that not what Jesus did for us? So let me ask you a question as I conclude. Isn't that a kind of king worth following? matter where it leads you. So here's how we close today. What I want to do is, I don't know what some of you are going through. I want you to know that there is a King Jesus in heaven who loves you. Who, is, who can save you from your sin. But also, who wants to speak to you in whatever you're going through in your life through His Word. And he's the pathway toward confidence in him as you walk through this life and all that it encompasses. So I'm going to do two things. Number one, when I get done praying, I'm going to go stand back here at the door and I'm going to have Kyle stand back there at that corner because he's already sitting back there. And maybe you're just going through something today and you're like, I need one of my pastors just to pray for me. Just to cry out to God who hears. And we want to be the people to stand back there and pray for you during this time. But secondly, maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, Jeremy? I, I don't think I have a relationship with this Jesus. In fact, I realized after you spoke that I haven't put all of my trust and faith in him. And if that's you this morning, then I want you to come back and talk to one of these pastors back here. And say, today I want to talk more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So you can come back there and say, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Or you can come back there and say, Jeremy, Pastor Kyle, I just need some prayer. And then you can sit right there in your own seat and you can take a moment to respond to however God is working on your own life. And in about two minutes, 
you can come and if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, you can partake in communion with us. Remember, this is reserved for only believers, not because we want to ostracize those who aren't believers of Jesus, but because we believe this is important and symbolizes our faith. And before you come, we want to make sure that you have that same faith so that when you come, you appreciate and with gratitude and thankfulness and worship what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to pray. You can come speak with me and Pastor Kyle. You can sit in your seat and after a couple of minutes, whenever you feel led, you come and you partake in the Lord's Supper with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being our King, our prophet and our priest. God, we thank you that you don't leave us here on our own. But God, that you speak to us. You still speak. That your word is sufficient for faith, salvation, and walking in godliness. And Father, no matter what we're dealing with in life, we need to know that you are there. We need to affirm in our hearts, based off of our faith, that you are there. While also simultaneously, Lord, we pray that you would make Jesus grander in the eyes of our hearts and our souls. So that as we walk, and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we walk and we fear evil, our faith isn't rocked. Because as you told Peter, that you, you are the rock of our faith. The gospel, Jesus, is our confidence and our only confidence in this life as we walk with you. So, Father, speak and move now in only ways that you can. Let people not be afraid to come and get prayer or to come and give their lives to you or to come forward to the table. Father, we ask that through your spirit you would work in only a way that you can. For the glory of the name and the advancement of your I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.